Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. Our current series is Everyday Saints, a study of the book of Ephesians, looking into what we have and who we are in Jesus. We're going to start in uh, chapter 1, verse 15. These are the words of God. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, And gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the gift that you give us, not just your word, but you give us your Holy Spirit, Lord, to to drive your word home to us. We pray, God, that as we get into the scripture today, that it would do its work in our hearts, God. That, that the words that you give us would get down deep, get into the heart of who we are, and go to work and change us and help us to know you and to know what you called us to, God, and, and just your goodness towards your, your church, Lord. We ask this in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Now y'all can have a seat. All right. So if you guys don't know, my name's James. I'm just, uh, just a member here. I'm very, very privileged and honored and humbled to be able to fill in for Tim as he's at the west side and uh, as Josh is in Greece teaching uh, a bunch of young pastors. It's a beautiful thing. I think Tim did a really great job last week. He was, uh, as he's setting up Paul's letters to the Ephesians. Last week we looked in chapter 1 and we see how, how Paul is... is is introducing the Ephesians to themselves, right? He's, he's not heard a bunch of rumors about them, and he's not like, oh, I know all about you. I'm going to tell you what's up. But he's like, he knows them by virtue of the fact that he knows what Jesus Christ has done. He knows what God has accomplished through Jesus Christ on behalf of Christians. And so because he knows those things, he can say that he knows the Ephesians. So he's introducing them to themselves. And, and if you're new here, if you're a guest, then, then the main thing I want you to hear is this. What Paul knows about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the life, the death, the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ, those are just foundational for Paul. That, that God, in his determination to save a people, sent his son Jesus as a missionary to this world. Um, that, that Jesus lived a life of complete 
obedience and faithfulness to the Father, that through his death on a cross, he died as the sacrifice for our sins, and through him rising from the dead in complete victory over sin, over death, and his ascension to heaven, which is to say this, in his victory, he took his rightful seat on the throne of heaven. He took his seat because the work was done, it was accomplished, and he sat down. Because the Apostle Paul knows these things to be true, and because he knows that the Ephesians believe this in faith, that he can say he knows the Ephesian Christians. Um, when, he, when he goes to introduce his readers to themselves, he doesn't talk about their accomplishments or their achievements in life. He doesn't talk about what they do for a living. He doesn't talk about their family history. He doesn't talk about where they live and what's their story. He introduces them to themselves by, by telling them who God says they are in Jesus Christ. He introduces them to what God has done for them and who God has made them in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't stop at an introduction. He prays for them. Paul is not merely content to just give them a description of what the gospel is and who they are because of that. He prays that what he's described to them would sink in. That he's essentially praying that that the light bulb would turn on, that the fog would clear out, and what he's saying to them, what he's describing to them, would dawn on them. Um, In verse 15 it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I I just want to pause here really briefly. Three minutes. This is hopefully my only bunny trail of the whole day. I just want to say that faith in Jesus Christ and love for the saints, that is his people, the church, they go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. And there really isn't any room for the, for the sentiment that, that I love Jesus, but I'm not down with the whole church thing because that's a hot mess. Now that may be true. The church is a mess. The church is a messy place. I understand that. But the fact is that Jesus loves the church. He loves the church enough to give his life for her. And if we love Jesus, then we love the things that he loves. And that's all I want to say about that. We can keep on going. Uh, Verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. So Paul, Paul's thanking God for these Christians. He's thanking God for their faith, for their love for one another. He knows that, that God's already done a work in their lives, bringing them the faith, giving them this love for one another. And he, he doesn't just stop at, at telling them this and thanking God. He's praying for them. And he, he's telling them that he keeps on praying for them, day in and day out, that, that the Holy Spirit would do a work in their hearts. I want you to notice that Paul's not, Paul's not asking them to, to receive the Holy Spirit. He just told them that, that God has already given them every spiritual blessing, that he's, he's emptied the cup of blessings, so to speak, and that when we believe in the gospel, we are sealed. 
We're stamped with the Holy Spirit. And, but part of the work of the Spirit in the lives of believers is to take what God has freely given and make it known to us, to, to bring the lights on, to, to drive it home. So when we talk about growing in the knowledge of God, we're not just talking about knowing stuff. We're not just talking about information, knowing the right things about God. When the Bible talks about God desires a people that know him, usually you read this in a context of, of it's a time when God is showing people what he's like. He's demonstrating his love for them. He's demonstrating his commitment for them. He's, he's showing them. Uh, the, one of the main places this happens is in the book of Exodus, where he goes in to this nation where the people he loves, the people he's committed to, are enslaved under a tyrant. And he says, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to get my people out with a mighty hand. And, and basically, the more, the more opposition I get from Pharaoh, the more I'm going to bring the pain on him, and my people are going to see this, and they're going to know that I'm the Lord. They're going to know me. And this, this knowing, this knowledge that we're talking about, is not information. It, it carries the connotations of intimacy and relationship. There's an old joke that people used to say, so you probably, none of you probably have heard it. But, uh, you know, they, it's a euphemism. They used to say, uh, you know, he knew her in the biblical sense. That in Genesis chap, chapter 1, it talks about Adam knew his wife Eve. There's an intimacy. There's a relational element to it. It's not just knowing things about someone. It's like the, the knowledge that a husband has of his wife that a wife has of her husband. It's the knowledge that you would have with your best friend. It's that it's abiding intimacy. We're talking about relationship. And I think it's, it's crazy when you think of all the things that Paul could have prayed for. He could have, he could have prayed that your career would, would look up or that you would be healed from all sickness and infirmity or... That, that your church would grow by leaps and bounds, or you'd have miracles happening every week. I think it's a, just astounding that what Paul prays for, he prays like, I, I, just, I pray that the Holy Spirit would give you the knowledge of him who saved you. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul, Paul gets red in the face, right? Tim described it as he takes a deep breath, and he, just, he goes on this rant about Everything that God has done to save us. He's, he's called you. He's chose you. He's predestined you. He's adopted you. He's poured out his grace on you. He's lavished his blessing. He's all these things, you know. He takes one deep breath and he goes on. And he's not just content to inform the Christians of that. He's not, he's not just telling them about how good the goodness really is. He's praying continually that everything he just said to them, everything he just said to us, that the Holy Spirit would take it and drive it deep into the core of our being. That, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. That deep in, the, in the, just the center of who we are, the lights would turn on. And that the pennies would drop. And that we would get it. That what he's saying would dawn on us. Not just that we could be able to repeat it but that it would go to the core and it would go to work. And, and I hope that we can see something here about the nature of the gospel. The Christian message can never be reduced 
to a few ideas about God and, a couple, and guidelines for living. Are you all with me? You can't reduce the gospel to information and rules. And, and if the only, the only thing that was wrong with us, if the only problem with the human family and the world that we lived in is that we, we needed a few good ideas and we needed to make better decisions, then that would be enough. But the scriptures tells us that the problem is a lot deeper than that. The problem goes deep to the heart of who we are. That the corruption in this world is not just a product of bad decisions, but it goes down to the heart. That our heart is corrupt, and our heart needs transformation. Jesus uses the, the language of being reborn. It's, a, it's called regeneration, a regenesis. You need to be recreated. That's so the problem is not just we need new ideas and information. If you go to the doctor and you have a rash on your skin, he might just give you some little, some little cortisone. You can rub it on and it'll be fine. Come right off. But if, you, if you're diagnosed with cancer, there's no lotion you can put on. The problem is deeper than that. You need the hard stuff. You need chemo. And the, the gospel is not a program of action. It's not three simple steps to better living. The gospel is not about something that we do for God. It's news about what God has accomplished and that he gives to us as a gift. It's news. And the Holy Spirit takes that through our faith. The Holy Spirit takes that and puts it to work in our heart. And that's what changes us. Okay? So Paul's praying. And there's, there's three things that Paul prays that the Holy Spirit would drive home for us. Three things that Paul is praying would weigh heavy on us. Not just the Ephesians, but on, on us. We're going to put ourselves in their shoes today. And the first thing he wants us to know is he wants us to know the hope that, to which he has called you. I think that's verse, uh, I think that's 17. Sorry, 18. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you would know what is the hope to which he has called you. I just want to be real clear that when the Bible uses the word hope, it doesn't use it in the same sense that, that you hear it thrown around in just every kind, everyday conversation. Typically, when we talk about hope, or you hear somebody use the hope in, just, in, in our culture, we use it in a couple senses. Usually, people use it in the sense of they wish. It's a wish. Uh, like when people say, uh, I, hope, I hope you get better. Or... I hope that works out for you. What they mean, typically, is that they don't have any framework of reference of how to, how to deal with your suffering and your tragedy. They don't, they don't have an answer that's adequate to your trouble. And so what they say is, I hope it goes away. Or at least, I hope that you stop talking about it because you're making me really uncomfortable. Sometimes... People use hope in the sense of just, it's just a vague optimism. It's just this kind of positive thinking that the things will get better and work themselves out on their own. And you say like, you know, everything's going to be all right, honey. It's going to be all okay. Have hope. That's not what the Bible describes as hope. Hope is certainty in the God who keeps his promise. Hope is confidence that when God makes a promise, that he, 
he's going to do what he says he's going to do. That he's fully capable of keeping his word. When he makes an oath, when he gives his word, he fully intends to do what he says he's going to do. It's not wishful thinking. It's certainty. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul uses the imagery of, of the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, a down payment. The Holy Spirit is our guarantee. It's a pledge. It's our first installment that what God has given to us in earnest, it's, it's a promise that he's going to deliver in full. Um, it's similar to when, when a man gives a ring to a, a woman that he intends to marry. It's a commitment that he intends to love her, to cherish her, to commit to her, to seek her blessing, to provide for her, right? This is like, God is like a husband. He, gives, he puts a seal on us and he gives us a promise that he fully intends to take us as his own. And I know, I know there are a lot of dudes out there who would give a ring to a woman with absolutely no intention of, of committing to them or cherishing them or loving them or seeking their blessing or even going through with marrying them. I know that's the case. But thank God that our Lord is not like that. God is truly the faithful husband who he keeps his word. His intention is for our blessing. He doesn't break his vows. And our hope is, is a right expectation. It's an excitement that God is faithful to the word that he promises. And he's going to honor it, his pledge. Our, our hope is for a world restored. Right? The Christian hope has nothing to do with clouds and, and, and babies and diapers and wings and harps. I don't, I don't know how that got into the Christian imagination, but that is not the hope that we have as Christians. The hope of every Christian is the hope of a world restored. That that's God's going to take our broken world, our broken lives, our broken bodies, and he's going to restore them. And that was always the plan, that God would put all things right. Not, not just because of what Jesus has done, but it's going to put them right back in harmony with Jesus. And he's going to do it in a way that's, that's unimaginably beautiful. And I say unimaginably because if you think about, if you go down like a, like a country road or something and you see one of these old, broke-down farmhouses with like the roof is caving in and you got like a tree growing out the front window and you have a family of possums that's like set up shop in there. When you look at that house, you almost can't imagine what it was originally supposed to look like. You almost can't imagine how, how its builder intended it to be. Or if, uh, or say you drive past someone's yard, I'm sorry to offend you if, you if any of you are these people, but you drive past some, some hillbilly's yard and he's got like a, it's one of them broke, broke down cars sitting up on blocks or maybe he's got like a collection of them, you know? It's like rusted our car collection and, you know, the windows have been shot out and stuff and it also has bushes growing through them. The fact of the matter is, you, you know what a new house is supposed to look like. You know what a new car is supposed to look like. But our experience, if, if, 
if you had never seen a new house or a new car, you would have no framework of reference of how that's supposed to look or how that's supposed to drive or what it, what it even does. You'd be like, that's an ugly lawn ornament, man. Why don't you get some flamingos or something? That's a picture of the world that we live in and the lives that we live, that this world is fractured, that, that our lives and our bodies are subject to decay and corruption, and that, that our hope, the hope of a Christian, is that God's going to restore our lives, even our bodies, even our world in Christ, through what Christ has done, but also He's going to take what's completely messed up and completely out of order, not just in the world around us, but in our own hearts, in our values and in our desires and our longings, and he's going to put it right. He's going to put things right back in harmony with Jesus Christ like it was always intended to be from the beginning. And, and if you say, if you hear this and you're like, man, that is the most outlandish thing I've ever heard. That's ridiculous. That's a fairy tale. That's too good to be true. You might say that. And if you do, I would just ask you to consider something. Our hope is based, it's not wishful thinking, it's not naive optimism, but it's based on the resurrection of Jesus. And I just want you to think about, think about the guy writing this letter. Think about the situation of the Apostle Paul writing this. He's in a prison cell that... that his prospects for improvement are looking like slim to none. And here's a man for, before he knew Christ, before Jesus confronted him and stopped him in his tracks, this dude had standing in his community and his family's eyes as like a rabbi, some dude that was like well-skilled in the traditions of his culture. And for him to say that Jesus Christ is Lord, for him to say that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, for him to say that Jesus is the one whom God has promised, the one to whom all the scriptures point, the ones that we've all been waiting for, for him to say that, that immediately made him an outcast. In all likelihood, he was completely cut off and disowned by his family. It made him a criminal in the eyes of the state. It made him worse than that in the eyes of his own culture. And and you think about, the book of Acts tells about how Paul is, is, you know, in his early life before becoming a Christian, he's on the road to Damascus. This is where we get the name of our church. He's on the road to, Damas to Damascus, and he wants nothing more than to stomp out this little movement of Christians, these people that won't shut up about the resurrection of Jesus. He wants to put an end to it. He's on his way to get some Christians locked up and thrown in jail, and Jesus confronts him. And stops him in his tracks. And he's like, this is my, these are my people that you're persecuting. You're persecuting me. And he completely changes the direction of his life. And he said, you're going to take this message of the gospel. And you're going to carry it beyond your neighborhood. Beyond your people. I'm going to send you to folks that you never even wanted to, to step foot in the same room as them. You're going to be my messenger. I'm sending you. Paul's not the type for wishful thinking. For him, Jesus is not some cool spiritual guy, you know? Church is not like an okay thing that your PO sends you to, and so it's really not that bad. It lets me get out of Huber for a couple, couple hours. 
That's not, that's not Paul's understanding of Jesus. And that's not our. That's not our, that's not our attraction to Jesus. I just want you to consider for a fact that without the resurrection, if Jesus Christ died on a cross and stayed dead, you would have never heard of him. We would not be here today. It would, he would have been a, less than a hiccup on like the timeline of history. The Bible paints a picture of, of the disciples after Jesus' death. They're hiding in, behind locked doors. The dude that they thought was going to save them just got executed as, as, a, as a capital criminal. And they're afraid. They're scared for their life. They're laying low and they're pulling the shades. And it's only by virtue of the fact of the resurrection that, that Jesus rose from the dead, that death has no hold on him, that there is even a church today. That's what our hope is based on. That's like the decisive evidence for a Christian. That's, that's the foundation and the anchor of our hope. So our hope is based on the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in, a, in another letter to a different church in Corinth, he says that if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and, and if the only hope that we have in this life is, is for this life alone, then, then we're suckers. We are the most pitiful people on the earth, and, and we should just ditch it all and eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. So the hope is based and is anchored in and is founded upon the resurrection of Jesus. Okay. Are you all with me still? So Paul is praying that he would know, we would know the hope to which he has called us. And he wants us to know also that God calls us his inheritance. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. There are places in Scripture where, where it talks about God's inheritance that he's giving to us, our inheritance, right? What, he, what he's storing up for those who love him. But that's not what he's talking about here. Um, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Not on the board. Sleeping back there, Burton. Um, his glorious inheritance, not for the saints, but in the saints. And I just want you to see this, that God is calling us, his people, his inheritance, the thing that he yearns for and looks forward to possessing. God sees uh, his people, the ones whom he's made his in Christ, as glorious riches. I want you to know that if you're a Christian, God sees you as his treasure. If we could sum up the whole storyline of the Bible, it would be God seeking and calling out a people to be his own. Back to the book of Exodus, right? This is one of the classic places you see this. He goes in, there's this people that he's pledged himself to, he's committed himself to. He's committed himself to this guy Abraham and his children and his children's children. And he's like, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And these people find themselves dominated by this tyrant. They're enslaved by this king of Egypt. And, and God sends Moses in and Moses is like, um, let these people go? And Pharaoh's like, 
No, my people. These are mine. These are my slaves. Who's going to do my work? And God kind of, in a series of judgments, he, he kind of opens can after can of, of a whooping on Pharaoh. And it goes progressively bad for him. It goes really bad for him. And he brings these people out of slavery. He delivers them out and he leads them out to himself. And in chapter 19, verse 5, it says, The whole earth is mine. The whole earth is mine. But if you hear my voice, you're going to be my treasured possession. The word that that they use there is like this private treasure. It's like the imagery of a king. and, And everything he looks on in his kingdom is his. He's got dominion. He's got authority over all of that. But he's got this private stock, this private stash that's like his special, precious crown jewel of all his kingdom. That's how God sees us in Christ. The good news of the gospel is that because of Jesus, through Jesus, we are his. It means we belong to him. We belong to the Lord, the sovereign king of all creation. Of all the things that he could boast about possessing, he calls us his treasure. And that, and that because we're in Christ, what he says about us trumps everything. Any status that the world or its authorities have assigned to you or to me, what Christ says about us trumps that. Let me, let me break it down for us. Knowing that we belong to the Lord, knowing that we're his treasure, it means that other things, other identities, other, other things that used to define us and enslave us, uh, they, they don't anymore. We belong to him and not to them, right? Addictions that used to dominate us, abusive relationships that we felt trapped in, standards that we, tr- we tried to measure up to and measure our value by, or, or standards that we thought that we have achieved and we, we have achieved and we, now we can look down on everyone else because we made it and they didn't. They don't define us anymore. It's not just our failures that dictate us. Sometimes it's, it's our achievements and our successes that hold us in a tighter grip. Whether, whether we have a ton of education or, or we don't have a GED. Whether we have a, a really successful career or we don't have a job at all. Those things don't define us. Christ trumps all of that. And this, I, this is not like feel good, think your way into better living. This is not get your act together and then this can be true. It's a done deal. It's not that eventually these things don't have to own you any longer. It's that they don't. It's a finished, right? If you're a Christian, God's claim on your life, the fact that he calls you his treasure, his inheritance, trumps every other claim on your life. All right. He wants us to know, the third thing that he's praying for, is he wants us to know, He wants us to know how great is God's power at work in us. I think that's verse uh, 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age and the age and also in the one to come. Two things. Two things I just want to I just walk through together. God's power is already at work in our lives. But the full measure, the immeasurable greatness of God's power is not yet. Alright? When we talk about the hope of a Christian, the hope that God will restore our lives and raise us up, that God will transform us, when we talk about God's power to take burnt out wreckage and transform it and inject it with His grace to bring beauty out of ashes, to give blessing and life where there was previously just sin and death, right? We should rightly expect that His power is working in us who believe. To those of us who know God has saved them, we should be able to look back in our lives and see places where God's power was evident. Um, when we talk about God being able to restore the wreckage of people's lives, I grew up on this side of town, just a little scrub. I was that type of kid that was walking around just kind of deserving a good kick in the teeth. I was that kid that when you saw your son or daughter hanging out with them, you got mad. Oh, you're like, oh, I hate that kid. I hate that kid. I was super arrogant. I was a thief. I was, I was, I was into drugs. I treated women in, in the most unhonorable fashion. And it's, it's not even the stuff before, before I came to know Jesus Christ. The stuff in my Christian life temptations that plagued me, right? The things that you find yourself doing that you're like, man, how can God's grace ever change this? Am I going to be stuck struggling with this forever? As Christians, we should expect to look back and say, God's power healed that. God's power transformed that, gave me victory over sin and temptation. I've seen it in my life. And and some of y'all know that story. You've seen it. Some of y'all know the story of Alexis, my wife. You've seen it in her life. I'm praying to God that I see it in the life of my kids. I'm praying that I see it in the life of some of your kids too. We ought to be able to talk about God restoring wreckage. Um, But we should know something. that, That God's power to heal goes beyond our present situation. It goes beyond this life. I pray to see God's work, God's power at work in this church, in this neighborhood, in the city. I want to see that. I'm praying for that. The elders are praying for that. Okay? But we should know something, that, that whatever successes we have in this life, whatever, whatever blessings we receive, they're, they're only provisional. They're part of the Christian life. They're part of the life that God gives us through Christ. And thank God for that. But they're only a sample. They're only a, a preview. Um, none, of us, none of us are going to have complete victory over sin in this life. I've talked to guys, you know, and they're like, if you just have enough faith, you'll never be sick. I'm like, well, what about when you die? Did you, like, did you forget to have enough faith in your sleep and, and you just, God took you out like that? 
It's kind of ridiculous. None of us is going to have complete healing from all of our illnesses in this life. The, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us to believe is only going to be experienced after our heart stops beating. After we, we take our last breath, they throw us in a box and cover us up with dirt. That's when that resurrection power, the power that he worked when he raised Christ up from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, that's when that's going to be known. That's when you're really going to fully experience God's power of restoration. It's at work now, but the fullness of it is not yet, and we're waiting on that, and we look forward to that day. If God has the power to raise Jesus from the dead and give him his rightful seat on the throne of heaven, then he's demonstrated that not only he can, but he will raise up those who believe. Think about, think about what Christ endured prior to the resurrection. He came to this, this mess of a world. He took on a flesh like ours. He faced temptation like us. And he suffered like we do. The rulers and the authorities of this world, they threw their worst at him, trying to stop him. And not only did God raise him up from the dead, but he, he, he put all things under his feet, it says. It's like a warrior, when, when he puts his boot on the neck of his enemy that he's defeated, all things are under his feet. This doesn't make our life free from struggle and, and trouble and suffering, but it's just, it's just a way to say this. None of these things are in any way an obstacle to God making good on his promise. Um, nothing's going to prevent God from completing what he's begun. Nothing's going to prevent God from, from taking possession of what's his. Nothing that we could possibly face or experience in this life is a challenge to God's power. And it says that he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. The good news is this, that the Lord who redeems us, the Lord who, who gives us a hope, calls us his treasure, has also given us his son. That the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth has authority over all things, but that authority is exercised for the blessing and the good of the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's just to say that his presence, his, his glory fills the heaven and the earth, but he's, he's promised, he's pledged to make the fullness of his presence known in the church, among his people, right the church is the place where Christ's presence is known and is being made known. And that's helpful to remember because it don't always often seem that way. I'll admit the church is a hot mess sometimes. It's inconvenient. It doesn't always fit our schedule or our whims. It's, it's demanding. But this is where Christ has promised to be. This is the people whom he loves. This is the people that he has pledged himself to, right? Not maybe this could be true someday. Not maybe, wouldn't it be nice if we actually, you know, if this was actually true? God says it is. God says it's a done deal. This is, this is how he sees us. And he's completed, he's, gonna, he's committed to bring it to completion. Will you pray with me? Have the, uh, the musicians come back up. We're going to sing and worship some more.
Let's pray. You notice this is not a go and do type of sermon. This is not go home and pray your heart out because Paul's praying for you and you should be praying too. This is something that the apostle is praying that, that you would just know. That the Holy Spirit would take this and make the lights come on. That's it. That's, that's, that's what I'm praying for. That's what the elders are praying for. That's what, that's what the apostle Paul is praying for. So join me in praying. God, thank you for the good news. Thank you for Jesus Christ who, who came and sought out his, his treasure, who purchased her with, with his blood, gave his life for her, rose from the dead to give her hope, and sits, sits at the right hand of the Father and, and, and has promised to come back and take, take what's rightfully his. Lord, we pray that the Holy Spirit would go to work in our hearts, turn the lights on, help us to see clearly, put your word to work, God. We thank you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name.